strategy number five for becoming a more effective private investor is to consider negotiating co-GP uh, deals, waterfalls, and joint ventures. So you can custom structure a deal to have a waterfall that pertains to the risk you see in the deal or the returns you expect. Maybe you want a 10 or 12% preferred return instead of seven to eight on a certain type of deal. And you might get a different waterfall or profit share based on that. Uh, also, if you're bringing the deal to the table or you're bringing a large percentage of the capital from investors you know or your own portfolio, you may be able to negotiate a co-GP structure, which means you might be able to come in and actually get access to the deal at, with no fees or actually earn some of the promote on the deal by really contributing a lot of value. You might have to take on some liability risk as well, but contributing value um, at, a, at a higher level than just an LP investor who only brings uh, capital to the table. So these deals, a lot of sophisticated families want to get co-GP deals done, but the problem is really small um, investment providers don't have the track record to really attract the, the larger family sometimes that would want to do these types of deals. And the larger investment advisors don't need a co-GP partner. They say, well, we're going to raise all the capital we need from LPs. We don't want to give up any of our economics. So you either pay our economics or you don't invest with us. You know, and they say it like in a respect in a way that respects them, but that's essentially the, the feedback they get. So this is something that um, main point here is a lot of investors don't realize how much room there is to negotiate. And many investors just pay the sticker price on everything as they go without ever negotiating uh, something. On the other hand, if you try to negotiate a custom structure in every deal you do, you'll just annoy people and not get a lot done because a lot of people will say, no, this is our structure. Um, so unless you're putting in a million dollars plus or five million plus, you know, we're not able to modify it. So it's just something to keep in mind. And co-GP just simply means um, when a typical investment deal gets done by a sponsor, uh, there are general partners who are responsible for the deal. Uh, and they're running the deal and they sourced it, they're managing it, and it could be a company or a real estate asset or even oil and gas. And then the LPs are limited partners. So the limited partners just put in their money. Typically, their liability is limited to just what they invested, and it's not higher than that. For a GP, you have liability above that. Um, and you're just passive as an LP investor. The GP is active and they're running the deal. So it also helps to find whether you are passive or active tax-wise, uh, but essentially that's what a, a GP is. So a co-GP is just when you put in money and you're partnering to run the deal. Hope that helps. Um, strategy number six is to do co-investments with other investors. So in this case, it is a strategy of looking for families that either are in a niche that you want to invest into you're going to conduct some of your own independent due diligence, but also re rely upon the fact that they have created all of their wealth in this niche of manufacturing or whatever the niche is and follow them along into the deal. Um, on, the, on the poor side of things, this can go badly when people follow someone into the deal without conducting any due diligence. It also goes poorly when the family claims to have deep expertise in creating all their wealth in an industry and then they're syndicating deals that really they have very little skin in the game and they've only put in a few hundred thousand dollars or some very small amount of money. And now they're wanting other people to put in millions of dollars and they're trying to syndicate it. 
but they haven't really been eating their own cooking on that deal or gone in and really put much money at risk in that deal. And they're really just trying to sell you something. This also can be, sometimes people create a platform and call it a co-investment platform. And the terms are very much traditional investment terms, even though they call it co-investment platform. And many times it's just a marketing strategy by somebody raising capital to say, do you want to co-invest with us? Well, really you're investing with them and they're the GP and you're the LP and they're managing your money, which could be totally fine. But what's meant really by co-investing is finding other families to co-invest alongside of, and maybe you'll both be LPs, maybe you'll both be GPs, or maybe you buy a company together. So sometimes it's two families, sometimes it's six to nine families that get together in specific industries and buy companies together and buy assets together. And co-investing is a trend that is discussed in the family office space uh, fairly often. And by, by doing so, people try to get uh, due diligence advantages and by grouping capital together, sometimes they can negotiate down fees as, as well. The other thing to know is that there are co-investment rights that you can earn sometimes by being an LP investor. Maybe they can't lower the fees for you, but you might be able to negotiate. If we invest seven figures or more, can we then have co-investment rights for up to 25% of what we invested to put in on top of the deal with no extra fees. And that's done fairly often uh, with larger funds and larger investors as well. So just know that this request may come up if you're raising capital, they might ask for co-investment rights um, and just know about this being a big trend in the industry. These are some of the considerations uh, on co-investments, you know, who's gonna be on the board, who's gonna have controls or negative controls to veto things like a sale to another company at a non-ideal price, et cetera. Um, many different considerations here uh, on the slide here. And we talk about this within our single family office book. Uh, number seven is performance only fee structures. Uh, this is something that really has not uh, caught on yet largely throughout the industry. Almost, almost everyone who runs an investment firm has management fees, acquisition fees, uh, debt fees, et cetera. Um, can you guys see the slide okay? Yeah, okay. Um, so what I mean here by performance only fees is that if you're an operating business and you're simply raising capital for your business and you're raising a million dollars and your company's worth $10 million, then you are you know, essentially selling 10% equity uh, in the company because your company is worth 10 million, you sold a million. Uh, well, if you're not running an operating business and you have an investment fund or investment firm or advisory firm, then having your fees be based on your clients doing well can be something that makes your clients feel more aligned with them. And what's interesting to me is that I got my, my licenses for my RIA and I had to pass some exams for that. And you know the SEC comes down pretty harshly upon performance fees. You, know, you have to disclose it in extra places and they teach you that in general, they're not a good thing. And to me, it's fairly interesting. Um, it almost feels like a protection of the old guard of charging people fees, no matter how you do for them, because wouldn't it be more abusive or more uh, of a bad thing to charge a fee to a client, whether you make them money or lose them money? The whole job of a wealth advisor or investment fund is to protect their client's funds and then make them some money. Uh, so to me, it's completely backwards how harsh the SEC comes down on people. There is a, a good reason for it, which I'll explain in a second. But the more aligned you can be with an investor and an investment firm, 
the easier it is for an investor to say yes to a deal. And typically the faster the deal will get closed. Um, and the reason why performance fees are frowned upon is someone says, oh, well, then the hedge fund or private equity group or real estate group can just take massive risk on behalf of the investor. And if the investor loses their money, then, okay, they lost their money. Doesn't didn't lose much money at the investment firm, just hurt their reputation, but it may gain a lot of money. And then they win on the upside. And then on the downside, the investor loses and they don't lose. So that's why people are against performance fees in some cases. Um, but I think a solution to this, even in the most uh, criticized of spaces or under the most uh, regulatory scrutiny, is that if somebody was concerned over you taking big risk, then you could have a performance only fee structure, but have those fees netted out over time or paid out over time via escrow. So let's imagine you did take big risk within a fund and you earned a $2 million performance fee on a $10 million account. Well, you could have that go into escrow and drip out over eight quarters. So you get a little bit of it released <clears throat> over time. And then if there is a drawdown on the fund, then you basically have a, you know, a reduction of that performance fee based on losses that were occurred to make the investor whole. And that way you're aligned over the medium to long term. And that's the only concern with performance fees that somebody's just gonna spike the account, take a bunch of profits off, and then the next quarter the investor loses 40% of their money. Right. So it's a valid concern, but having an escrow account set up so things get dripped out over time is one way to address it. Uh, the other way that we have been implementing this is that with our platform for passive investors at investorclub.com, we make it so that if somebody invests in more than one deal with us, then any fee that we have control over or that we charge um, gets netted out in case one investment does go down. So let's say somebody does three investments with us and two of them produce 15% returns in one year, but one of the investments loses 20%. Well, then the dollar figures are calculated and until we make them back the money that was lost, we don't get to charge them a performance fee on those other two deals. And that way we're more aligned than if we charge them separately based on making the money just on one deal. Um, so <clears throat> that's, that's how we have approached it. And I also wanted to share that so you guys know we're not just sharing these ideas as theories, but this is something that we believe in enough that we've implemented it in our own business model. Uh, we have a couple of questions here. What about high water verbiage in the deal? Yes, um, high water verbiage is important, meaning that if somebody invests one year and the account goes down and then the next year it goes up, well, it needs to go back up above what they invested from. And that's how we calculate our returns for investors. They put in $100,000 and it goes down to $80,000 one year. It goes up to ninety thousand next year. We still don't get a performance fee because you know they're they're still in the negative. They haven't really made money off the whole investment yet. Uh, the next question here um, is: It better is this better than doing a straight seventy thirty split? Um, it just depends on the type of investment you're doing. Whether straight performance fee, um, I mean, a seventy thirty split could just be a straight performance fee. If that's your only fee, you're basically saying we take thirty percent um, on the back end of profits. You keep 70% and that's our only fee. Um, what gets messy is when you say we have an acquisition fee, a debt fee, a construction fee, an annual management fee and a performance fee. And many times um, there's so many layers of fees that the investor doesn't really know what the total amount of fee there is that they're paying. And they would rather pay you sometimes a 50% performance fee and not have you nickel and dime them every year, every quarter and in 12 different ways within the account um, rather than 
rather than have it the other way. So it's just finding the right balance and not for, for everyone, it's not right. And I know for some of you, you're thinking right now, well, that's impossible. I've got all these deal costs of traveling to the deal, due diligence on the deal, managing the deal. So the compromise there is that you could say, we track the expenses of running this deal and then we charge back fees equal to the exact expenses of running it. So you guys know we're not making a dime off of running the deal. We make our money off the back end or when we make you a profit. And then that way the investors get comfortable that you're not making profit off of just uh, putting the deal together before it's even gone well for them. So uh, let me know if there's any other uh, questions uh, here, but I've seen fees anywhere from a 6% preferred return to the investor. And then after that profits are split 50, 50 to uh, no preferred return. And the only fee is 50, 50 profit split. And I've seen 8% preferred returns with 20 and 30% profit splits a lot. And then I've seen some with, um, you know, a 12% preferred return and then 50-50. So all, all over the board um, in terms of fees. Uh, we're going to get to the slide in just a couple minutes. Okay, number nine here, uh, a multi-pronged investment opportunity sourcing approach. So if you want to source excellent deals as an investor or an investment firm, then you need to have multiple ways to do so. You have to be in two to three different communities. You need to build up a database of potential prospects. You need to figure out who the top connectors are in your space. You need to define really clearly who you're seeking out and position yourself as an investor to be found by those that are looking for a capital partner in the space. And doing this in a multi-pronged approach is something that most family offices don't do. So it's a big advantage over others if you can do that. Number 10 is to consider using royalties to um, grow for growth capital for a company. Uh, we've completed eight or nine uh, royalty transactions now and we're structuring two more of them at this point. And essentially it is structuring the deal so that the investor gets a percentage of the gross revenues off of the deal and they may get equity or equity warrants. And then once they get a certain amount of income off of that deal, maybe their equity goes down a little bit or their equity warrants get reduced a little bit, um, or maybe they get royalty uh, royalty in perpetuity. It just depends on what's negotiated. But the main point here is just to consider using royalties because almost nobody does. We've, we've asked at multiple conferences and we once met a family from Sweden that only did gross revenue royalty structured deals. Uh, and otherwise, no one else seems to be doing these in the space. And this is something we, um, we've been learning more and more about, but to make it really clear when someone is putting together a deal and you could do a convertible note, or you could tell an investor, Hey, you're going to get income off of this deal at this level for this amount of time until your capital is back off the table. It makes it so they maybe don't have to stay illiquid for as long and they feel more secure making that investment into the private company. Um, let me make this slide more clear because it's really small, small font here. Okay, hopefully it's a little bit more clear now. Um, if you want to rate your family office, uh, you can do so. We have a, a quiz here for those of you that are running a single family office. So there's a little link you can follow. Um, getting your family office management processes really dialed in in your processes as an investor or investment organization is something that really can help um, get an advantage in the marketplace because most private investors are not super well organized. They're not process driven and they 
don't take their investment organization seriously as a business organization. Um, when you're running a family office, you're running a small business, you have a team, you have payroll, you have a P&L, um, you have expenses to manage, et cetera. You have software to, to manage. So it needs to be professionalized and you will grow your wealth faster the more you professionalize the approach, just like you'll grow your investment firm faster the more it's process-oriented and professionalized. Um, focusing your energy on uh, choke points is something that has transformed our business uh, just like getting um, billionaires.com or writing the only book on how to start a family office, or um, we secured a paid uh, training spot with a group of high net worth investors. Their average net worth is probably around $7 million, um, but they've been great people to work with. And now we have a hundred uh, investor relationships and we get paid to provide content and insights to that group. And that's essentially a choke point in our space. If we could acquire two or three more of those, it would enormously grow our relationships with investors. Um, so a choke point for you, um, if you're an investor, would be looking at your niche industry and thinking, how would it be inevitable that I do better as an investor, get more deal flow, make more progress, grow our revenue, get more distribution? What one asset, if we could acquire that asset, would really give us a huge edge and one of the families that I spent about six hours talking to one day uh, sold their business in the auto parts industry. And so they were asking, what's a choke point for them? And I said, well, if you're going to acquire auto part uh, companies, why don't you consider the trend of direct to consumer and find the top three Amazon based sellers of auto parts? maybe that have a wide inventory and uh, consider buying one of them. And then you could uh, also look who's the top three direct to consumer websites that sells auto part, like aftermarket auto parts is what they're focused on. And then you could um, buy one of those top three websites. Those investments might produce a PL and they might produce some profit, but more importantly now, whenever you go to an auto part company, uh, you can negotiate with them and say, look, you're already selling a million dollars a quarter through the, our website, and you're not even on our Amazon account. If you allow us to invest, we not only know the space like the back of our hand, but we're going to put position you on the front page of our website and get you up to 1.5 million a month uh, per quarter instead of 1 million. And we're going to add you to our Amazon uh, auto parts store. And we think we can bring in another half a million dollars a month that way. So we're going to bring in, we're going to pay for our own equity just through growth in your business. And when you have a key choke point in an industry, like the number one direct-to-consumer website for auto parts, number one Amazon company, or a top three, then people will take meetings with you about you, them, you investing strategically in their business because they want distribution from you. They want their sales to go up. So they'll not only take meetings with you, they'll give you an investment price at a better valuation than they'll give anyone else. You'll see deals first, you'll see deals exclusively, and you'll be able to look at what's selling really well on your own website or Amazon store. And then you could approach them about uh, investing in their company proactively. So massive benefits come from that type of a move. And in each one of your niches, there are moves like that that you can do that are less expensive, uh, like putting together a thought leadership resource or signing a partnership with someone that just takes time and relationship development. 
or things that are more expensive. So hopefully that, that helps with making that, that idea more clear. And then playing a unique game is um, the other item I think is um, super critical and gives you a big advantage. So based on everything we've talked about today and putting together, together your dashboard and knowing where you wanna have control and not have con control and what choke points you want to acquire, um, figuring out how you're gonna track your score is different maybe than other people. Just like for our business, we're not just a conference business. Uh, we track our score based on our membership uh, and our, our reoccurring memberships. We also base it on how many deals we get done, how many new investor relationships we're starting. So the way that we track our scoreboard is going to be different than our competitors who might base it purely based on their revenue for the quarter or revenue for the year or number of conferences they held, et cetera. 